Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit-accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. And welcome everyone to our next episode of 100 Days and Beyond podcast that's there specifically for individuals who are what we see as the unsung heroes of the deal-making fraternities, the practitioners that make deals work after the deal has been signed and up and running. And uh, today we've got an absolutely brilliant guest. His name is Harrison Tull. He's director at Altius and he has according to profile which is quite magnificent in terms of its of, of the the background harrison what a background so let me go through it a bit we've got a, a, a 10 years of experience in operational leadership roles has demonstrated a track record of driving new business wins so obviously sales and so on and being having the ability to communicate with people launching organizations from the ground up so that's already a big one restructuring teams forging mission critical partnerships and alliances that's again people and then delivering top line growth and profitability and if we go into some of the key things so you focus on enabling private equity growth in EBITDA improvement opportunities, advising private equity and private equity firms and their portfolio companies on operations strategy, SGNA optimization and large scale target operating model transformation. And really there's some great examples. So we've got senior manager of operations excellence at PWC. I'd love to hear a bit about that, where you redesigned one of the world's largest professional services firms, global IT and HR organizations, collaborating with C-level and senior managers across 21 territories, 157 countries to generate $220 million in annual savings. I mean, that is magnificent. And then also looking at revamping an 800-person global finance and, and accounting organization spanning 30 countries for a $20 billion consumer packaged goods company to realize a $60 million annual savings. And you have a number of other examples there as well. And it's been, it's a fascinating profile. And clearly, you've been in the rough and tumble of it. And, and Harrison, how did you get into it? Tell us how you landed up being a practitioner in this space and, and getting involved. Yeah, Dudley, thanks so much for having me. Humbling to be here. Uh, you know, it's funny, I kind of fell into consulting. I wasn't exactly where I wanted to be when I was going through my college days. I thought I wanted to do sports marketing. I played, uh, grew up playing sports. Um, I played uh, Division One lacrosse in college as well. So I don't know, you always gravitate towards kind of what you're doing. So I thought sports marketing was uh, a nice niche for me. So did all my, you know, internships and companies I worked with um, growing up in the sports marketing arena. And then I had the opportunity to uh, get my MBA because then next year of eligibility to play lacrosse. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll do the MBA, not really knowing, I think, what I was getting into. And then I was all of a sudden exposed to what is this management consulting, strategy consulting world. And, uh, and I, I, th I thought, this is exciting and I'd love to try it. So unfortunately, because I had done all my internships with you know, sports marketing firms, I had no shot at getting really into uh, any of the big consulting firms. So that was the goal. What are the stepping stones I need to take in order to wind up in a you know, top consulting firm? I took a first job with a startup 
focused on indirect procurement. We did outsourcing. We had an indirect procurement software tool, uh, as well as some consulting. Spent a couple of years there in a few different roles. Eventually, landed in kind of a sales role towards the end and um, kind of built the credibility to get into a Pricewaterhouse, which is where I kind of flourished. So moved to PwC, and then that's where you kind of read there was a lot of the work that we did was in the uh, shared services, outsourcing, global business services type environment. We did a ton of automation towards my last couple of years there as well. All of that really lends itself very well to private equity world, right? In terms of value capture very quickly and uh, large scale integration, a lot of arbitrage and, and offshoring in some cases, and then a heavy use of automation were appropriate, right? So then I found myself towards the end of my time at PwC ready to try something new. I had worked with some really brilliant folks that had kind of moved to other startups one in particular, my mentor had started really focusing just on the private equity space and we had stayed in touch. And in March of 2020, we started talking about maybe we try to go build this, be something a little bit bigger uh, than we had discussed. And so we, we put together Altius, which he had already kind of founded. We pulled together a team with some folks from XPWC, as well as some other folks we worked with and uh, started building a firm focused on value capture for private equity specifically. And that's what that's all we do. And uh, so we're two and a half years into our journey. We're growing. We're at 30 employees, and uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. And uh, been learning a ton, but using a lot of the, you know, skill sets and experiences that I had at PwC now to bring that, you know, in full force in private equity. Just interesting. I, I think for certain parts of the audience that are potentially in other careers and or even other interests and coming into something like M&A world and the uh, private equity world and so on. Do you think that although your journey may have started where you thought that you had a few steps behind everyone else, but don't you think your background in sport and the ability to, I think of that whole mental capacity that you build up in a sporting career, the competitive nature, the ability to have the self-discipline training, going all out, doing the extra mile to get to some sort of level of success in sport. Do you think that's got a correlation to your journey in terms of the successes that you've had? Yeah, absolutely. I think athletes have a leg up, I think, on the competition in a lot of ways in corporate America or not America, but, you know, in the corporate world. If you think about, I mean, even back when I was in my MBA, right, we talked about we took a management course. And I remember thinking like this, this seems so intuitive, so natural. Some of the things we talk about in leadership and leading teams and, you know, core management principles. And then I remember reflecting back and thinking that's because I've been in organized team sports my entire life. And I've seen what a good manager looks like because I've had great coaches and I've seen what a bad manager looks like. I've seen, you know, how to motivate folks. One thing that intrinsically drives an individual and having a coach that can coach both to the, the individual and to the collective and try to bring together a cohesive group to achieve a goal. So absolutely, athletes have a leg up in that regard when it comes to working with others, as well as all the skills that you learn as an athlete, being able to multitask, being able to be driven towards a single goal, um, able to work with one another to achieve that goal. There's so much in, ath in athletics that translates to real world that, you know, I feel very fortunate that I had that experience, especially to play at the highest level in Division One. You get to play with, you know, incredible athletes that are incredibly driven and build around trying to achieve, you know, the highest goal possible. Yeah, especially if you get challenged. I think that's what brings probably the best out in one and because, you know, one can get complacent and if you're playing at the highest possible level, there's always someone better than you or someone that at your level that's pushing you just to inch up a little higher. I think there's a massive value in that. But there's also an element I want to sort of link back into your current role, which I think is quite important. That's the ability, 
I think there's the technical skill of doing the actual sport, but there's also the EQ, mm-hmm. the people side, because essentially the team is made up of highly motivated individuals in any case. And now you're taking a high performance people and you're trying to get them all working in the same direction. And they might have very strong opinions. They might have very different training backgrounds. And now you're trying to bring them all together into one united sort of team that operates and acts out a particular strategy. I just wanted to sort of delve a little deeper in that. And maybe you could relate it to one or two of the projects, how you see some of that sort of came about. I saw it more at PwC because we had larger teams they were working on. Right now, within the work we're doing on Altius, our, our teams are small. We're three to five, unless we're doing a big carve-out. But some of the more strategic work or the value capture work is pretty small teams, seasoned folks that have been doing this for a long time. In my PwC days, that's where the ability to try to uh, think about, you've got a range of folks across the team, right? You've got a first year analyst, you've got you know a 15-year director and partner, and then everyone in between. And as a manager or a senior manager, you're sitting there trying to just be the glue and hold it all together, which is one of the more difficult roles you have in consulting, mm-hmm. trying to be that, that delivery senior manager, right? Where you're trying to bring along the new folks and teach them the skills. And it can be a little bit frustrating because you're supposed to rely on them to run the business case or the data collection and to have it in the right format. And uh, gosh, it's all the technical things that you need to have, but also trying to develop the folks in terms of how they deal with internal and external stakeholders, how they understand to present in front of clients. When is the right time to present in front of clients? Uh, you know, is always a, a big one. But I think for us, which was great for me at PwC as one of my mentors there, always remember that age is just a number. And so would put us in front of the client extremely early in our process and mm-hmm. have us own things that I think a lot of teams weren't. And it, you grow, right? As an athlete, you learn from failure and the same way you do in the corporate world. So I think, you know, getting our folks exposed to the highest level conversations as early as possible and getting them to own a key part, key deliverable, something that translated from athletic days as well is, you know, you have to have a freshman that steps up in that spot when a senior gets hurt. So I think, it, you know, a lot of, a lot of it translates there. Yeah, and I imagine it's uh, you also build a culture of a certain type in, in sports teams as well as in business teams, whether they're small or big. This is the way we do it here. This is the way, you know, the ultimate way. So let's look at that because you're also busy building up a business. You have been mm-hmm. part of big, big businesses. And maybe just yeah. summarize maybe for us, what do you see as the attributes of a really good integration person, a person that, that sort of fills those shoes. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because we always talk about the specialist versus generalist you know, attributes, right? I find myself to be a, a more of a generalist, although I think we've got across our team, but within uh, what I've done specifically, it's really around you know, mid and back office operations and, and specific to global business services. But I think that lends itself nicely to solving a lot of different problems across the organization. What I found as being a generalist has is, is really helped me because I think that allows me to move across functions within the organization, across problems, uh, and just to be kind of that problem solver. And I can give plenty of examples of, you know, where we go into a client thinking that we're going to you know, solve one problem and then another one pops up and that's where we go full force on it. So how quickly can you, you know, move on to a new problem? Can you identify other problems or the right priority of problem sets to, to go after? So I think, you know, that's a big one. And then obviously we're under tight timelines. So I think, you know, folks that deal with pretty intense pressure, you know, the P guys are, I find out a little bit different than some of the clients I dealt with when I was at PwC. Timelines are cut in half if you're lucky. And so you're dealing with a lot of complexities. You're dealing with a shortage of data in a lot of ways. You have to be okay with 
not knowing the full picture, but making the right assumptions and moving forward, that can be pretty stressful. And then, you know, all the technical skills that come with it as well, right? I mean, obviously you're dealing in Excel and other tools quite a bit. And I think, you know, being on a couple of projects, all of a sudden you realize how to get to something much quicker. What are the templates you can use that are going to accelerate this project from using it on a previous one? Um, and then I think the last thing would probably be, like you mentioned, the EQ is huge. I think executive presence, particularly in this arena, is so important. Being able to quickly and confidently, concisely communicate. There's not a lot of time. So, you know, very quickly being able to get to, you know, what is the problem we're solving? What is the value we're capturing? You know, what is the one-time investment or the ongoing? Being able to get that down on a page very quickly, be able to explain what assumptions are going into that and being able to defend it. And then understanding, you know, what feedback you're getting and how the individuals, the stakeholders you're working with are responding. It takes a lot. And then on the other side, uh, it's just dealing with those everyday day-to-day -day managers. Right, or directors that are working within the company you're working with. And it, it can be a very hostile environment. Uh, I've come in some very difficult environments because they know kind of the writings on the wall in some regards, or people know that you know they're gonna have to cut their team size, you know, to hit a number, or they're gonna have to move more to a lower cost center, or they're gonna have to automate, or big problems for directors and managers. And trying to build a bridge, say, I, I understand you, I'm here to try to co-create a solution with you can be very difficult, but I've built some really great relationships with clients as a result of trying to put myself in their shoes and say, let's come up with the best solution we can. And I know oftentimes those people are the ones that you know get promoted as well. So trying to let them know like, hey, look, if we can do this thing right, this could be a really great path for you. And countless stories of clients that have really moved into excellent roles as a result of kind of leading an integration or you know, divestiture. So anyway, there's a lot of skill sets, but I think those would probably be some of the few I'd, I'd think about. I think you summarized it incredibly well. I want to sort of pick on a few of those elements. I think one of the key things where I would like to start is when you're working in a corporate environment, you end up having a certain methodology and attitude towards an acquisition and integration, et cetera, et cetera. And there's potentially more of normal working hours. If you arrive, you've got a project, you're busy with it, you have a report, feedback, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you look at the private equity world, which is everything is time-driven, results-driven, and at the end of the day, everyone's looking, not everyone, but the PE firms especially, are looking at, at the value creation, the synergy capture, all those fancy terms, yeah. which are key terms, and I subscribe to them massively. So value creation, synergy capture, all that type of thing. But the driver is EBITDA, right? And EBITDA as quick as possible, EBITDA growth is as quick as possible because they are looking to take on one or two platform businesses and then sort of tuck in and consolidate and do it within a time span of the fund that they've got available yeah. uh, because they've got to exit as quick as possible. So you're not just thinking about integration, but you're also thinking about how do you prepare for assisting the PE firm to get ready for exit. I know that's probably the last thing on everyone's minds at that stage, but you almost have to think so far ahead and say, okay, it's all part of the value creation, but value creation doesn't just happen during integration. It happens, value creation often happens and is only seen at exit for mm. PE firms, where yeah. with corporates often it could be a tuck-in, it could be even a separation or a divestiture, where you know it's more about the strategy and rolling out sort of improvements and, and so on. So the attitude is different. So I've sort of outlined it, but I I'd like more of your experience around sort of what is, give us that the polarity, if you like, the difference between those two drivers 
mm. and how that influences you and in, in your day-to-day work. Everyone we've come into the last couple of years, right? I mean, it, the prioritization is around, we're here for three years max. So let's maximize value creation as fast as possible. We were working on a project when I first you know, moved over to Altius with a large PR and content distribution company. And we went in thinking that we were going to pull the typical levers, which would be indirect procurement, HR, IT, finance and accounting, right? Those are kind of the main ones you look to say, okay, we've got massive savings that we can find very, very quickly. And in a couple of days of workshop conversations with the COO, we started realizing, wait, their content distribution side really has some of the most upside potential in terms of consolidation, outsourcing or offshoring. And once we started realizing, digging under the covers, we realized that there were just an amalgamation of multiple companies that they'd acquired over the last five, six years. And each country was running their own process, had different products that they were selling, different price points, and all doing it at a different cost, right? And so we realized we could really leverage some lower cost areas. And so we pivoted and we went down and we said, this is gonna be a three or four year hold for this private equity. The biggest value we can create is around this contract distribution side. So we put aside some of the bigger areas that we know we'd go after uh, usually, or they're bigger typically, but not in this case. And we focused on content distribution, which is a brand new function for us to go after. And we're talking, this is front office, this is the you know touching customers, this is the actual product that's getting delivered to customers and trying to understand from there, you know, going through the exercise of what is strategic, what is real intellectual property, what is, you know, ability to put into a more consolidated shared service type environment, what are we comfortable outsourcing if we were to do that? Um, and it led to a massive, you know, 120 million five-year deal for an outsourcer, a lot of consolidation into kind of two areas, India and, and, and Portugal. Um, and then once we had that in place, then we went back and we looked at finance and accounting. We looked at indirect procurement. We looked at IT infrastructure and product development and started to put those. But again, those were kind of the secondary priorities after we went through the first. So I think that's one of the big ones is kind of saying, what's your time horizon? Uh, how quickly can we get certain functions and other priorities you know, aligned? And then what is the value that each one's driving? And then being able to prioritize around that was key. How do we cut the costs as quick as possible because that's the only synergy we can achieve. Yeah. But if you look at the business from a strategic point of view and you say, okay, if we have a value creation mindset, mm-hmm. what are the business opportunities that were hidden during the deal-making process, the due diligence that happened? Because the guys that are doing that and whether you're involved in that or not, but most of the time the deal-making team are all about paying the lowest amount of money for the asset, almost apply a recipe in terms of how do we sort of pay the least amount of money, cut the costs the quickest amount of time, bring these 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 assets together, and in that way, you know, exit as soon as possible by having increased EBITDA by doing a few moving pieces on the chessboard. Mm-hmm. Then you go in as an integrator, and then you realize, but wait a minute, in fact, they were thinking they're going to exit at you know at a certain value, but by just tweaking the levers and you calling it pivoting, but just by leveraging the things that you realize during the integration process, you're probably creating even far more value than what they even had realized during the deal-making process. And that I find incredibly fascinating. And I think a lot of the, the audience that are listening that are deal-makers and are not necessarily integrators can potentially say, okay, at what point do we bring integrators into our deal-making process to potentially start looking at maybe there's other opportunity for us that we can go and get the value creation. Maybe our approach is not, shouldn't be a cost cutting, mm-hmm. you know, cost cut, jam it together, package it and move on within that, let's say the three-year time horizon. Because mm-hmm. often 
it takes a, a PE firm, for instance, at least one or two, three years to get going once they've raised their money, their fund. And if their fund's a 10-year process, you know, at where they, they need to exit, mm-hmm. they've pretty consumed two, three, four years. By the time the acquisition has happened, that means their runway is starting to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And guess who gets that kind of pressure? It's yeah. the integration team needs to perform because it's now become a superficial type of pressure. Just tell us a little bit about that, your experience around that. Yeah, and I think you'd probably want to separate right growth and buyout funds, thinking about what the prioritization is going to be around cost cutting versus being ready to acquire more, as you say, on the growth side. But I think getting involved as an integrator as far upstream as possible has, like you mentioned, some of the you know most value that can be created from it because you're starting to bring in an outside perspective and the folks that are actually going to be on the ground doing the work Getting them involved a little bit uh, sooner in the process always works. I think getting involved even before deal close, looking at the original due diligence, the five, 10 day, you know, kind of quick and dirty due diligence, but having the right benchmarking and the right teams that have been in place. And, and then when you do the confirmatory diligence, obviously having the right integrator, I think, or folks with deep integration expertise that can really build the playbook. You know, my last deal that I worked on was with a, one of the world's largest uh, IT distribution companies. And we started getting involved pre-close uh, it was one of the first for me within the work that we've been doing in Altius, getting involved, you know, with them very early on. And you start to realize, you know, what the bankers told us in terms of what the actual value capture looked like and what we're actually seeing on the ground. That there's some differences, to put it nicely. And I think what you then have to do is, again, the, the pivot or move to a new lever or whatever it is. The number is the number, right? We're going to go find that value, whether it's in that function or if it sits outside. Mm-hmm. And then you start to, to think about where else can we look? I mean with that IT distribution company I mentioned, looking at SKU rationalization, I think drove way more value than they had ever dreamed. And you know, some of the work that we thought we'd do within you know, their global business services for finance, for example, they're actually a pretty mature organization. And so we were able to not only do you know, the due diligence to understand where the opportunity was, but also we did you know, maturity assessments, understood where the capability sits today, what is real in terms of what can be moved out of country or you know, how mature our processes are within country today. And you start to build a much better picture in terms of where can we actually drive you know, real savings that we can book towards you know, the playbook number we put up ahead of time. So the more we can get involved up front, and that's what we keep telling clients is, you know, if you can pull us in for that, even the earliest on due diligence, just to look at operational performance, looking at the right benchmarking, help build out the story and financials and part of that confirmatory as well. That's huge because if we're going to be the ones integrating. That's brilliant. I want to just go into the word you mentioned a number of times in the earlier part and the importance of mentors Mm. in your journey, because you mentioned that a few times. Is that important? What does a mentor do? What's the best value that you get out of a mentor? How did you find the mentors? Just tell us a little, just a little bit about that. Mentors are huge. I had two really great mentors at PwC, and I was very lucky that we fell into a good friendship, a good working relationship very early on. And one was the original director that had hired me, who's now my business partner. And so we've known each other, I guess, eight or nine years now and been working together very closely. And we worked on almost every project together. And then another director I had worked with, who was one of my first few managers, who is just one of the most brilliant guys I've met. And I kind of just followed both of their coattails in terms of, you know, at PwC, because they'll vouch for you in the right leadership discussions that you're not in, but also put you on the right projects and uh, give you those opportunities um, to really shine and uh, to push yourself. One of my most trying projects I was on at PwC was um, we were in the Walgreens, uh, sorry, not Walgreens, Abbott Laboratories in St. Jude Medical Integration. Um, Mm. Huge acquisition in, uh, I think it was 2016, 2017. We had our manager leave the firm 
And I was a senior associate at the time. And my mentor, who was also the, the director on the project, took me to dinner and he said, I think something's going to happen. And I need you to step into a role. I think you're ready for it. And if not, <laughs> I will bring in whoever you need in order to support you. But I think you can do this. And I took over managing that project. And it was, we were there for a year with Abbott. We had an unbelievable relationship with our stakeholder there. We did some really cool things from, you know, location analysis and flying down to Costa Rica and Mexico and trying to build out what it would look like in terms of consolidating, you know, those two businesses that had very strong global business services capabilities already and, you know, very different technology environments as well. So there's, it was very complicated and complex, but we had a great time doing it. So having a mentor that has a lot of faith in you and puts you in, you know, those spots to learn and to grow was huge. And then I think for myself, outside of just, you know, my immediate folks that I've worked with, for me, I've really spent, especially the last couple of years, last few years, trying to grow out what I call my own board of directors, right? Mm -hmm. So folks that I've worked with or that I have in my network and try to build out like, you know, who is this person to me? Can they help me advance my career? Are they in a completely different career? And I can lean on to say, here's what I'm thinking about something. And so I've kind of been building out a board of directors for myself the last few years into figuring out you know, how do I stay in touch with these folks? But it's not transactional in that way. I think, you know, I really enjoy the conversations with those people as well. But there's so many great people out there that I've worked with that can give great advice. And even if they don't work within your specific industry, a lot of things you know, are crossover between jobs and industries. So that's been a huge thing for me as well, is trying to groom that network of folks so I can tap into them when I have needs as well. And I imagine it's at some stage you'll probably, and probably already doing it, bringing youngsters in through the process and handing over the baton in terms of also doing your own part, own mentoring. I don't know if you've started, but that transition from being mentored into becoming a mentor is also quite an interesting journey. And I think it's a personal growth journey as well, yeah. where you start passing on a lot of your own knowledge. You actually only realize how much you know and have experienced when you start mentoring someone else. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a totally different thing. Tell us if you have you ever experienced that? Oh yeah, I mean, I got a great opportunity at PwC to mentor some really smart folks. That was one of my favorite things. I think I I lost when we started a consulting firm where I'm the associate, the manager, the director, and everything in between, you know, on a project because we're trying to bootstrap and move quickly. At PwC, I had a great opportunity to mentor a few folks, whether it was a direct mentor relationship, which I had a few um, folks into what they call it PwC, it's called coaching, right? So you have your coach and then you have your partner and then you have a relationship partner. But I loved the coaching aspect. It was one of my favorite things. I had two really great girls that were my direct coaches and we talk almost every day, particularly when you're getting towards like year end when, you know, performance reviews are going in and you're trying to position them in the right way. <laughs> But uh, I got to work on some really great projects as well with large teams. The one that you mentioned at the beginning of the call was probably the largest project I've ever done. That was internal to BWC. So if you think about 21 territories, 127 countries or whatever it was, all do their own IT, their own HR. The only thing they share is that they're in this partnership network, mm -hmm. right? The branding that goes with that and paying into it. But the services being delivered are entirely separate. And then they do that for good reason, for tax purposes and but we wanted to try to build a partner network that could provide those exact same services. So we had a huge team in order to do that. And we had a lot of the young folks on that team as well. So it was really fun, you know, for me getting to the coach and, uh, you know, that was really fun for me. So absolutely, I'd like to do it more. I think the last couple of years I've had my head down trying to just grow this business and make sure that we delight customers with what we're doing. But it's tough. It's a tough balance between getting young talent in, but they don't have necessarily the skills or the experience that we need. So you know, first, you got to kind of build the experience. You build the technical skill and, and exactly. so on and so forth. Yeah. 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 Well, we've, got, we've got, you know, we've got a group of interns that we've brought in for the summer, which is great. So I think they're getting up to speed quickly. So, yeah. 
I noticed you did talk about generalist versus specialist, etc. And there's different types. So in my mind, you've got leadership and the management side of things as project management and managing the various work streams. And then you can also have generalists and specialists in terms of the actual technical skills involved. So there are people that are able to work across work stream, maybe able to build different financial models and impact across different work streams, but they might not be specific work stream people. But then you get other people that are maybe just really brilliant at at the IT side of things or really good at the marketing and sales or really good at the HR or whatever the work streams are. Just give us your definition of what do you mean by a specialist versus generalist? And are you talking industry? Are you talking, because there's a number of places you can apply generalist versus specialist. Give me some ideas around that. That's a good point. When I think of specialists, I think the deep technical expertise in a given function. I mean, we have IT specialists that I work with in our group at Altius that can go to the level three of any IT process. They've seen it all, they've done it all, and they can talk the talk. So when I think about specialists, I think about folks that sit within function-specific specialties that have either worked in that capacity or that's all that they've done, you know, cybersecurity, IT infrastructure, you know, product development, or if you're in the finance side, you know, the folks that can get down to the, you know, not just talking about what your closed process looks like, but knowing the individual processes that you're doing, who's involved, they know the right systems landscape as well. So when I think of myself, you know, I consider myself more of a generalist in the sense that I've been lucky at least what I would consider lucky is I got to be across multiple industries at PwC and now within the work that we're doing at Altius. I've got to work in multiple functions, usually mid and back office, so heavily within finance and accounting and IT and HR and indirect procurement, obviously. But but I get to pull in the right expertise or the right experts to drive that. So that's what I would think about generalist versus specialist. We've got about 15 odd minutes left, and, and I want to spend a little bit more time talking around some of your personal experiences, let's call it golden nuggets you want to share, things that you thought were incredibly valuable, maybe values, I don't know, whatever it is that, that's important to you. Take a few minutes, just sort of share a few ideas around that. And then after that, well, I want to get into the actual company, Altius, and what you're trying to achieve there. And then we'll get into a bit of personal stuff. So let's start with some examples and some sort of golden nuggets, if you like. Yeah, let's see. I guess we can start with some of the work we've done the last couple of years. I mentioned uh, recently worked with an IT distribution company. That was a massive deal. I think the largest private equity firm had done in terms of total entity size. We're talking about a $50 billion you know, IT distribution company, which is pretty large for them. I think a couple of interesting nuggets to take away from there. One would be the difference I've seen in terms of what types of pressure a private equity will put on the management and on expectations based on how that company's doing, right? If they're a growing company like this one was 20% or 26% year over year revenue growth, they've got three years of backlog for IT, they've got customers that are paying, they trying to tell them, hey, that you need to cut X for your bottom line has a much different conversation than you know a company that's really struggling in terms of revenue growth, top line growth, or even the ability to cut costs. So that was one I saw, and I think it was interesting to see the dance between the PE firm and management. It was a much different one than I'd seen in some other deals that I've worked on. Um, that being said, I think we did some really interesting things. And I think a great example of, again, going back to that pivot word that I mentioned earlier, one of the areas that we looked at, I guess we had two major pivots. One was a little bit smaller and the other is quite large, but on the smaller side, we had looked at the order to cash process, particularly around credit operations, collections with that client. And we had thought that there was a large opportunity to move 
a lot of that work into some of their lower cost areas. They had uh, Sofia, Bulgaria, and Manila, Philippines, that we could leverage a lot more. And talking with a lot of the CFOs of those countries, I understood that the real issue was around systems. And they really didn't know what they didn't know because they were dealing with this patchwork of homegrown systems that each country was doing differently. And there was no one view on who's doing what. And so very quickly we pivoted to, okay, look, well, let's put in a, a collections and credit operations tool with high radius at the time, which is a great tool. And uh, I think we'll see the value that drives, but trying to move our business case then towards more automation and reducing DSO, which you know had in terms of interest rates, had a pretty large working capital improvement as well. Yeah which wasn't what we had originally thought, you know, we were going to go after. And then once we've got the tool in place, you know, in a year's time, I think then we'll have the data and we'll be able to say what other work can we move then to a lower cost area, or perhaps they'll just be with better systems, be able to redeploy folks in terms of other value added, you know, roles. So that was the big one. I think we learned there was you know, being able to pivot very quickly on, is it a, a tool or a process or people type problem? The other one there, I think was there on this massive digital journey. Right. They brought in this uh, high powered, really, really cool chief digital officer, and they're trying to redefine everything about how the customer interacts with their company, how the you know internal folks interact with one another. And then all of the third parties, right, as a distributor, they're dealing with all these tech companies that they're distributing their products for. So that entire ecosystem of you know customers and partners and the internal folks and building this entire digital platform around it is, is crazy. It's a huge undertaking. What it did was it refocus, reprioritize almost everything that we looked at in terms of value capture. That's in the right place. Then the amount of value that you can drive with that, both internally and externally is massive. Top line growth is huge, but even in terms of the way that people do their work today, if all of a sudden quotes are generated from a system and not you know manually generate, then what are your quote makers doing, right? So, and that's a very specific example, but extrapolate that everywhere, right? So the digital yeah. strategy completely redefined everything we looked at and trying to pull a whole parties on the same page in order to achieve something with it. It's very difficult um, to say the least. But I think that's just an example of, you know, you go in thinking one thing and then something very quickly changes and you just gotta figure out how do we solve this problem and how we pull everyone together towards a single goal. It would appear that technology and systems and processes and all that has a massive impact on the success of an integration. It seems to be that Technology has infiltrated pretty much every part of a business these days. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a time 20 years ago where technology was only applied by certain divisions, you know, like the finance department. They always generally had some kind of ERP or bookkeeping or some something like that, or the manufacturing would have some sort of stock and, and sort of production planning. A lot of the departments operations-wise didn't really have tech. It's now bringing everything together. And then you also have this problem where when companies, especially ones when you're trying to bring them together, you're all these disparate systems that are already, uh, many of them are systems upon systems. It's yeah. these ecosystems of, let's call it a spaghetti ball, if you like, of stuff. And it sounds to me like one of the biggest challenges for when you get involved with clients is trying to bring some kind of sanity to that environment. Is that a fair assumption? Oh, without a doubt. It's, it's massive both from a cost standpoint, you know, there's also obviously some costs that can be reduced if you rationalize or consolidate that IT application landscape, but there's a huge amount of man hours that go into it and cost to, on the IT side to, you know, to get those systems stood up. I mean, it's, it's huge. One of the things we looked at with this last IT distribution company going in was, you know, all the work that had been pulled in from the different countries into their global business service centers, 
right? Mm -hmm. There was no harmonization across what tools that they were using. So the person that's sitting next to someone in Manila that's working for the India group versus, you know, for North America are doing the exact same process on two entirely different systems. So imagine like the ability to harmonize was huge, but it took a whole lot of time. I and mean, it's going to be something that I work on for the next two years, trying to understand what is the right process? What is that blueprint process, if you want? That's what the word we use there was. But uh, and what is the right system to be on? Right. Is it a system we don't have today? Is it a system that, you know, they're using in Germany that we need to explore? There's a lot of that goes on. So one of the first things we did in terms of understanding the current maturity of the organization and what is capturing that full IT landscape and what processes are using which systems, or which applications. And then even more so is on the carve out side. Right. So one of the things we're doing right now is on the chemical side, we're doing a, a large chemical carve out consulting on the, the IT specific portion of it. That's 500 plus applications globally across, I think, 37 countries, right? And now trying to figure out, you know, what application needs to stay with which company, are they both using it? You know, it's not all gonna be tied up nicely in the TSA going forward. So trying to figure out how that works going forward and who supports, you know, each application. The IT environment uh, just adds so much complexity. And I remember when I was in my MBA class, we had a great IT professor. And one of the things we talked about was, I remember we read an article called uh, IT Doesn't Matter. You know, is it a value generating or, you know, a key component of an organization or is it just help keep the lights on? And I think now we've realized even in the digital era, even more so, IT is so pivotal to a company's success. One of the first things you have to get right. And I think that's when we talked about getting up part of the due diligence up front, getting that IT lens right away and understand because there's so much more that can go wrong on the IT side, particularly because companies don't invest a whole lot in IT. If it's not broke, you don't fix it, right? And they've got two programmers sitting in Milwaukee that are a year away from retirement that pulled the thing together with bubblegum and, and shoestring. And, you know, it's crazy to see some of the environments you get into because it's a massive investment to move to a new ERP uh, or any type of application, right? So, yeah. Yeah, so I just want to expand on that. I mean, from, from my experience, I mean, you get one issue is you get pushback from users, Mm-hmm. Especially multi multi language, multicultural, you know, because certain even certain legislation in certain countries require reporting in certain ways. They also have certain things of where's the data kept? Can it be done? It must it be done in within the country or is it kept outside? So you've got all these data protection regulations. So you get user pushback, you get regulatory issues around your IT systems. So, uh, we've seen in our experiences, you might have an SAP or a, one of these big ERP systems implemented, but it could be the identical software, but they've been implemented completely differently in six, seven, eight locations. So you might be paying the same license fee to the same software vendor, but the implementations are so disparate that sometimes you literally have to start again using the same software. You almost have to yeah. re-implement the same software across everything because of the multiple implementations, because everyone had their own implementation team. They got local regulation, they got local users and local systems and processes. So there's that dimension to it as well. So, I mean, tell us a bit about that. I'm sure you've seen some of that. Yeah, it's always a huge problem, right? You, you see so many different people using the same system differently. That happens quite a bit. But our going in hypothesis is that on the collection side, and the one I mentioned earlier with high radius and the collection side is that we can move to a blueprint process that everyone can at least get on board. There's going to be some country nuances. There's language dependencies, obviously, and you kind of work towards the end. But the idea is that you want to have as much as possible a single process that is being replicated across. In this case, it was 13 countries. And the only way that you get to value quickly and to something implemented in a very tight timeline, right? I mean, we started in 
April this year. We want that thing to go live in October or end of September, really. So we're not dealing with any of the Q4 you know, shutdowns within IT. So trying to get everyone around a single process is entirely impossible, right? I mean, Germany wants to do it different than the US and they have good reason to do it. And you know, even getting us all to sign up to one tool was a pretty hard process. You know, That was something they had been working on for 18 months. Everyone knew we needed a new collections tool, but no one wanted to agree to what tool it was. And so trying to get everyone in the room to say, all right, what are the tools so we're looking mediator, at? Mediator, negotiator, you're, oh you're a translator, yeah. you're a... <laughs> yeah, I remember, I mean, it was that's probably one of my biggest success stories, I think, for me individually, because I, I kind of took that on. I saw this was a, a problem that needed to be solved, and I said, I'm, I'm going to focus on this within you know, this organization. And I was as I was leaving, you know, some of the stakeholders I worked with, guy who runs... Um, uh, the overall O2C process within North America, you know, he said, there's no way we could have gotten this done without you kind of pulling us all together and saying, we need to make a decision going forward and just trying to commit, just commit. And get it, uh, yeah. matter, let's just commit. Let's just get going. <laughs> it's so hard in these large organizations that have, you know, but you've got collectors that have been there for 28, 30 years doing the same process. They like the way it works today. They don't want to change things. It's a huge issue. Yeah, I'd love to bring you on to another another episode. We probably could speak forever, you and me. We didn't even touch on the data aspect because when you're doing a carve-out is who owns what data, what parts of it are transferred to this entity, to that one. And if you're bringing entities together, often the data migration or the data consolidation, they're in different formats. And you know, they could be partial and there could be gaps in the data. And so there's a whole data cleansing process before you can even do migration. I mean, we haven't even got to those topics yet and, and we'll get to them hopefully at another occasion if you're open to coming onto the show again. I want to go quickly now into the change directions and go into, tell us about Altius, tell us about the value proposition. You've been going for about two and a half years. Um, what is your goal? What's your aim? What's your sort of vision for the organization? Where are you going? What do you present? What are you offering to the world out there? It's really the brainchild of my business partner, Rajiv Arjun. So he's my mentor at PwC. And I think he sits within the, the Silicon Valley world. A lot of the stuff he worked on was high tech. We did at PwC, we did private equity work, but also did you know IPO readiness. So I think he started to kind of build a hypothesis around having a consulting group that focuses on private equity specifically and has deep expertise, understands you know what intrinsically motivates private equity and portfolio companies. You know, one of the companies that we're working with right now is a, a healthcare company. And we won that deal because we came in and they knew two things. One is that we had deep expertise in operations and two, that we were private equity focused. And when we went in and we talked about, you know, timelines with them, we talked about a, a 12, maybe 15 month timeline because we know we're towards the end of their holding period. Whereas Accenture came in and talked about a, a three to five year timeline, right? And they're thinking five years, you know, we could be two owners down the road in five years. So you, you don't understand our company. So that's, that's the, that was a hypothesis and it's it worked out pretty well so far. I mean, if they work with a consulting group or, you know, even an individual contributor that works in integrations or M&A work and they do good work, they will continue to put them on, you know, to their next project because they know that that program will be successful. That's been our biggest thing is we're private equity focused. We have deep expertise across operations and we get the work done. And we have delighted customers that we've really done a lot of great work for. And we want to continue to do that. And really we focus around three areas, right? It's the due diligence and standalone analysis, right? We do acquisition investiture post-close. And then we do post-close value capture, All right? So anywhere that we can get involved, but the sooner the better, you know, from our point of view, because we'd like to be able to drive what that value is that is being determined up front. And then, you know, from there, we do a lot of work, like on the post-value capture, it's the builder buy decision, 
right? A lot of it, I think, in terms of uh, you know prediction or the way that we're moving forward, a lot of it's been buy. I think there's been not a lot of appetite for building shared service organizations or low cost mm-hmm. centers. That's something that we did a lot in like in the early 2000s. And now it's, uh, I think there's there's a lot less appetite, especially on PE. You want to be able to move quickly and a third mm-hmm. party can get you there very quickly, right? So we bring in a large set of uh, a network of third parties, both kind of the niche third parties that do say just IT product development or large yeah. firms that you know can do the full stack of functions and help kind of move through that process. So for anyone in the audience wanting to get hold of Harrison and you're in private equity, this is probably the right kind of person to talk to. And I just want to just quickly go into onto the personal side before we wrap up. You got a relatively new organization, you got some really good customers and they're demanding a lot of your time and energy and, and focus and effort. How do you balance it all? How do you keep yourself sane and focused, the right sort of mental state to do your work? That's a great question. I think it's funny. I I haven't I, I, I told a lot of people this, but so I'm a recent transplant to London, right? I moved from New York. I was in New York a long time. My fiance was transferred to London for work. It's actually awesome for me because a lot of our customers at the moment have been North American focused. We've got a couple in Switzerland that we're working with now, but um, so that frees up my morning. And I can take my mornings to do whatever I want. If I need to catch up on, you know, on things, I, I can do that. But if I want to do something else, I have, you know, at least a, a few hours in the morning that I, I have to myself where no one's calling me generally, which is great. But personally, no, I think the biggest thing for me is finding a good schedule. You know, I've really got into triathlons last year. So I've got a couple of the things on the wall there for triathlon medals. For me, it's finding a good balance for working out is huge for me. If I get 30 minutes between calls. Yeah, it's jumping on the bike. That's the biggest thing for me is trying to make sure I can carve out personal time. I think the biggest thing also, one of the things that are going in hypothesis about about Altius was that we can work from anywhere and we can work at any time, any time zone. So if you look at our our team, we're everywhere. We're completely distributed across all the U.S. Got me here in London. We've got folks in India. We can work at any time, and which is a great thing. It's a blessing and a curse in some ways because if a client wants something, you know, someone's going to be up with the infamous night shift, you know, that we're all working on at some point. I, and I have some pretty late calls, obviously, being in London to, for clients that are in the U.S. But yeah, for me, it's just carving out that time for myself. But the flexibility that I've got that, you know, mm-hmm. we, since we started this firm and being able to kind of carve that time out whenever it is during the day is huge for me. And I think that allows me to pursue other, you know, things like triathlons or what have you. So, yeah. I think that's how I stay mentally, you know, stable. Yeah, so there's definitely a decent balance. And I think that probably comes back from your original, your sporting career, knowing that you have to have that clear mind. You have to have a strong and healthy body and, and also a mental, emotional side of things as well. Harrison, we're at the end of our, at the end of the show. Thank you very, very much. We could probably speak for hours. Absolutely thoroughly enjoyed your input. And, and thank you for sharing everything that you have. Please come back to us on the show. I mean, let's see how it goes in the next six to 12 months, what the Altius journey is. And for anyone listening today, if you'd like to get hold of Harrison, Harrison Toll, Director of Altius Strategic Consulting, new website up and running earlier this week. Please go onto the website, have a Google, have a look, but you'll probably find Harrison on LinkedIn. Are you okay with anyone reaching out, Harrison? Oh yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, check out the website, it's uh, altius.us. You can see the full leadership team we've got there and some of the, we've got some really great case studies as well, some of the work that we've done. But yeah, always happy to carry a conversation with whoever's interested. So hopefully, you know, people found it interesting, but uh, yeah, I'd love to. I'm sure they will. And I'm, I'm sure they'll find the episode uh, interesting too. Thank you very much and, uh, and and all the best to you. Okay, so thank you everyone. Please join us again uh, on our next episode. We go live at least once or twice uh, a week. New episodes are being generated all the time and we bring absolutely brilliant guests 
magnificent careers that they've had and, and still on their journeys to become bigger and better as they go. But for me, 100 Days and Beyond stays a platform for those unsung heroes that work in the background and make things happen. And especially for firms like private equity and, and any firms that do acquisitions or M&A type work, this is the right platform for you to find the right kind of skills and the right kind of information that you might be seeking. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, Harrison, all the best. And we'll speak to you at some stage in the future. Goodbye, everyone. Hi, everybody. This is Dudley again. And if you need help with a future or existing post-merge integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website, skillfulpursuit.com.